Hey, we're live. How you doing, everybody? And welcome to another episode of the John Riley Project. It's Wednesday. It's May 31st. It's hump day. How y'all doing? Boy, we've got a great show in store for you tonight or today um, here. Uh, you know, we try to get this going around 12 noon on Wednesdays, and uh, we're going to cover a lot of different things. I mean, we're going to be getting into the debt ceiling deal, which is a big thing going on in D.C., but it has implications here locally. We're going to talk a bit about campaign finance reform because that's been an issue here in my local hometown of Poway. We've talked about it in the city of La Mesa, um, and it's going to have implications there's new reforms coming with campaign finance. We're going to talk a bit about that. Um, the city of Poway is also still trying to figure out who they're going to appoint to, to replace uh, resigning council member Barry Leonard, or if they're going to have an election. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, big news in San Diego, if you're a Padre fan, you know, the whole television situation with Bally Sports has changed. So we'll touch a little bit on that and kind of my thoughts on streaming and the cutting the cord. Um, and then some thoughts about the Santee Drive-In. Apparently, that might be for sale. It might be going away. We'll talk a little bit about drive-in theaters. And then plus, we'll have the San Diego Community Forum, where you can participate, where you can share your thoughts and comments. Um, and I've got some great comments from social media there talking about uh, Rancho Bernardo Roads, and we'll be talking about uh, homelessness and our Escondido superhero, Amy Landers, and a number of other things. So, wow, we got a lot going today. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Of course, you can participate in the live stream. If you want to just share your thoughts and comments, just type them in the live chat on either Facebook or YouTube. I'll see them here on my screen. I'll get you involved in the conversation. Okay, let's... um. Let's start with this debt ceiling. I call it a debt ceiling circus. Now, you know, my podcast, I generally try to, to cover local stories, right? I mean, there's, there's enough people covering these national issues, but still sometimes there are national issues I just feel very passionately about, and I do want to comment. And this does have implications here locally. And it's this whole debt ceiling circus that's going on. And I guess they're voting today in the House of Representatives. The federal government's about to run out of money because they can't increase the limit on their credit card. And this is back and forth between Biden and McCarthy. And it's just been theater. It's just been absolute theater and in many ways, nonsense. So the way that I understand this deal, assuming that it's going to pass in the House, um, is that uh, the Republicans and Democrats have come together and basically said, we're not going to try to figure out a way to solve this debt crisis. In fact, what we're going to do is we're not just going to increase the debt ceiling. We're going to suspend the debt ceiling entirely. And kick the can down the road and it won't apply until the next election. And it's then will, um, you know, will they be able to deal with it? So usually this is a negotiation of increasing the debt ceiling by like two trillion or three trillion. They're just saying, you know, we're just going to eliminate it. So further proof that neither one of these parties cares about the national debt. No significant changes in spending. I think, you know. For discretionary spending, maybe with the exception of the military, I think they're going to try to keep it at the previous year's levels. But, you know, government officials, when you try to say spending is flat, they think that's a cut. And their math and, and their kind of logic is all sort of out of whack on this. Um, but in the end, this is really just about power. I mean, you look at Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House. I mean, this guy 
is, you know, he sold his soul in order to be the speaker. He sold his soul in order to retain power. And these politicians have no interest, no concern to really do what's right for taxpayers. They don't want to be good stewards of taxpayer dollars. They just want to keep spending and spending because they know when they spend, well, that's when they make their constituents happy and that's what gets them reelected. But they don't care about future generations. They don't care about the drag on the economy that all of this creates. But it's just a ridiculous circus that's going on with these guys. So, you know, you hear all all this rhetoric, too, about the, the debt ceiling. Oh, my God, we need to cut spending. Oh, my God, we need to increase taxes. Oh, my God, we got to get rid of those Trump tax cuts. Well, I want to break down a few things here. Okay, right now, our federal deficit is about one and a half trillion dollars a year, which is like a mind blowing number. It's a huge number. So there's a one and a half trillion dollars a year. Now, some people said, well, we just need to tax the rich. If we just got rid of those evil Trump tax cuts, then we could solve the problem. But that won't even come close to solving the problem. If the Trump tax cuts from 2017 were just magically erased, you might see an increase in revenue of about $200 billion a year, which is really only about 10% of the problem because we have a $1.5 trillion deficit. And really, the only way that this is going to be solved is if these politicians get together and make some decisions on areas where they can cut spending. But they just won't do it because they're too too addicted to power, too addicted to what's happening right now, not at all thinking long-term, not at all doing what's best for our nation. They're just about, I want to spend and spend now so I can keep my donors happy, my constituents happy, and so I can be reelected so ultimately they can retain power. But the whole system, the whole paradigm is broken. I mean, neither one of these parties, Republicans or Democrats, are serious about trying to have any sort of responsibility on fiscal issues. They don't want to reform entitlements. In fact, a couple of Republicans, just a few, maybe two or three, were saying we need to reform Social Security and, and, and Medicare. And oh, my God, the Democrats raked them over the coals. And, you know, basically they were trying to say that you want to throw grandma off a cliff. Well, these programs are not sustainable. Come in, you know, by the time we get to 2033, Social Security will be unable to fulfill its promise to taxpayers. You know, because we've all been putting money in Social Security, you know, throughout our career, throughout our lives with this so-called social contract, this so-called promise that it would be available to us upon retirement. Well, you can't count on that. Um, In 2033, the the trust fund is going to be empty and they're already cash flow negative now. So the trust trust fund keeps eroding. They're not going to have enough money to fund Social Security. And and they're already running a one and a half trillion dollar deficit in the regular budget. So what are they going to do? I mean, they either have to cut Social Security spending or they're going to have to increase Social Security taxes or they're going to have to cut spending or increase taxes with the general fund or just put the whole darn thing on the credit card. And none of that makes sense. And by the way, Medicare is worse. Medicare is going to run out of money, you know, sometime later this decade, and they're not going to be able to fulfill promises made. I know um, 
Biden recently, let me take that back a little bit. Biden recently um, passed, you know, he signed a legislation that was going to be able to extend Medicare for a period of time. So I take that back. But still, that program is not sustainable either. And there's just no interest in cutting spending. But you hear these hypocrite Republicans that are demanding spending cuts now. But geez, in 2018, when Trump was president, in 2018, when they had full control over Congress, they not only didn't cut spending, they increased spending dramatically. They removed a lot of the limits on spending that the Tea Party guys had were able to kind of weasel in there in, around 2011 or so. That, that that kind of slowed down the growth of spending. They just removed those caps, and Trump, you know, he even campaigned on this. He campaigned on expanding spending. So when you hear these Republicans say we need to cut spending, we need we're concerned about debt and deficit. It's a bunch of malarkey to use Biden's terminology. It makes no sense at all. Now, neither one of these parties is responsible on this issue. I mean, we can, you know, you see the Republicans blaming the Democrats for their overspending. You see the Democrats blaming the Republicans for being hypocrites on this issue. But I'm telling you, neither side cares about the debt. Neither side is responsible. Neither side is a a good steward of fiscal responsibility. I mean, right now, if you look at our national debt, it's like around $31 trillion. Oh, my God. And roughly speaking, half of it has been accumulated with a Democrat as president. And roughly speaking, the other half has been accumulated with a Republican as president. So neither one of these parties has any credibility on this issue at all, at all. Okay, so here, let me run some numbers for you. You guys just kind of put this together. So. Roughly speaking, before Ronald Reagan, like before 1980, the national debt was about a trillion dollars. And I remember back then we were all freaking out because, I mean, how often do you use a trillion as any sort of a mathematical calculation on anything? I mean, there there aren't even a trillion stars, I don't think. I think we're only talking about tens or hundreds of billions of stars. Um, so there's a, they're talking about a trillion debt, which is what existed in 1980. Well, Reagan added about $1.86 trillion. And then George H.W. Bush added $1.5 trillion. And then Bill Clinton, yes, Bill Clinton, the one that so-called balanced the budget and ran a surplus for four years, that Bill Clinton added 1.4 trillion to the debt. And in fact, the the national debt increased every single year under Bill Clinton. And you might think, "Well, how is that possible? I mean, he he had a balanced budget. He had a surplus for 4 years. How could the national debt go up?" Well, it just kind of goes to tell you that a lot of the accountants, the accountancy, the way they run the numbers, a lot of it is like funny money. A lot of it is a distortion of reality. So even when Clinton so-called had a surplus, they were still borrowing money. And the national debt went up $1.4 trillion over his eight years. Then George W. Bush came rolling in. He increased the debt $5.85 trillion. Then Obama increased it $8.6 trillion. Then Trump came in, who, by the way, promised in his um, campaign in 2016 that he was going to pay off the entire thing. And back then, the national debt was, roughly speaking, around $20 trillion when Trump became president in 2017. And he said, 
oh, in the course of my two terms, I'm going to pay off the whole thing. And you're thinking, what? That is the biggest freaking lie. That's never going to happen. And what did he end up doing? Well, according to the data I've discovered, he increased the national debt, Trump, $6.7 trillion. I've heard other reports at $7.8 trillion. I mean, it kind of depends on how they break these numbers down. But they just jacked up all the spending as well. And then Biden gets into office and you know, he's coming off of this whole pandemic, you know, with COVID and all the crazy spending. And what does he do? He keeps increasing spending. And he's already added at least $3 trillion as of January 2022. Now we're over a year later. So, I mean, it's it's just one after the other after the other. So according to my math, the Republican, a Republican presidents have, you know, been at the helm for about $16 trillion in debt. And the Democrats around 13 trillion. So it's pretty close 50-50. And we could say this party's worse than that party, but at this point you're really trying to decide who's the lesser of evils. Because neither one of these parties is financially responsible. And not even in the least. Um got a couple of comments, got a comment here from Yuri Bolin on the live stream, and he says, cut corporate welfare and unnecessary wars and Social Security will be just fine. Well, that's not exactly right, Yuri. Um, Social Security is kind of like its own separate thing. It's 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 like a, a separate budget just for Social Security. It has its own revenue stream that comes from payroll taxes. I think we put in. What is it? Um, is it 2.3%, I think, that comes out of our payroll taxes and then that's matched? It's something like that. No, no, wait, no. It's like 6.1% that comes out of our paycheck and our employer matches that. For me as a self-employed person, I have to pay double Social Security tax, by the way. Uh, I got to cover my own as an employee and as an employer, um, that's the revenue. And, you know, when the program was created back in the 1930s, you, you know, there were a lot more people working. Um, and as a result, well, actually, you know, once we got into the 40s and 50s, there were a lot more people working. And the program was had a, had a huge surplus in its trust fund, largely driven by these baby boomers that were out there working. And that trust fund has been built up and it was looking really nice there for a while. But then after the baby boomer surge kind of relaxed, people saw this coming. They said, oh, my God, when these baby boomers retire, there's not going to be enough money. This this Ponzi scheme of Social Security is not going to be sustainable. And now here we are. So you get to 20. Right now, Social Security is cash flow negative. It, it spends more than it brings in. They're able to dip into their trust fund to cover the Delta. But it, the trust fund is almost empty and they've loaned out a lot of the trust fund to, you know, they've borrowed it for a lot of other reasons to kind of fuel spending in the operating budget of the federal government. It's not going to be okay. The, the board of trustees of Social Security has said they have a problem and that in 2033, they will be unable to fully pay promises made. And this board of trustees also oversees Medicare, and they've made a similar comment about Medicare. Well, they previously made a comment about Medicare that it was going to run out around 26 or 27. 
2026, 2027. But now Biden has sort of kicked the can down a road. I think it may not expire now. He might have expanded it maybe 15, 20 years. And then at some point then it's going to have a problem. I mean, ultimately, these programs are built on flawed demographic models, flawed economic models. And frankly, I think they're immoral in a lot of ways, especially when you're promising people something that they know they can't deliver on. So um, I've also heard all these other comments about, well, especially from Democrats, and they'll say, well, Democrats are the only ones that have lowered the deficit. They'll say Obama lowered the deficit and, and, uh, and Clinton, you know, ran a, a surplus. Well, you know, Obama took office in 09, right after the Great Recession, right when there was all this insane spending. He kind of came at a point when there was like this economic crisis, just as as um, Biden came in um, on the tail end of Trump and spending was through the roof because of all these bailouts and everything. And a lot of that relaxed. Sure. And the deficit started to go down most every year. But in in President Obama's final two years, the deficit started going back up. And then I've already said, you know, Clinton may have run a, a so-called surplus, but the national debt increased every single year that Bill Clinton was president. I mean, you'd have to go back. I mean, you talk about Democrats and I mean, we all know the Republican presidencies are terrible when it comes to debt. Trump skyrocketed debt. Bush and the other Bush and Reagan skyrocketed the debt. But, you know, Carter increased the debt. I mean, you'd have to go back to, I think, Calvin Coolidge in the 1920s to find any president that actually not only ran a surplus consistently, but actually paid down the national debt. Old Calvin Coolidge. I think he might have been the last one. He was a Republican, but he was the last one that was responsible. And that was, what, 100 years ago. So um, it's just nonsense. And nothing's going to change here as long as these guys are in, in office. Um, as long as these two parties basically see government as this giant cash cow that's going to be used to essentially buy votes, this thing is not going to solve. It's not going to, unless they get to a, a terrible crisis, and then it's going to be pandemonium. So all of this, I think, is theater. You know, we see Janet Yellen, she's screeching about we're going to run out of money. There's going to be an, a worldwide economic collapse. There's going to be all this chaos if they don't pay the debt. Well, you know what? There's plenty of money available to pay the interest on the debt. And that's all you need to do to, in order to be solvent, to, you know, to not default is you just got to make that interest payment on the debt. They've got enough money to do that, but they want to be able to do that and do all this other spending. You know, they need to take a hard look at their budget, but they're not. They, they, they just agree to just keep increasing the debt. Now, why am I bringing this up? I mean, you know, here I am. I'm a guy that does a podcast about San Diego stuff, San Diego local news and local politics. Well, this has implications at the local level, too. Um, you know, specifically like how local government manage this, manages their own finances. I mean, I, I've commented before that in 2014, I was a candidate for Poway Unified School District. And I was very critical of the way they were doing business because of the billion-dollar bond. And and if you listen and follow my podcast, you know I've been very critical of Poway Unify for that reason, as well as this an additional bond they want to propose. It just seems that government officials 
don't live in the world of reality. You know, when we live our lives, we have to be smart and responsible on how we manage our dollars and cents. And yeah, we might have debt like for a mortgage, but that's linked to an investment. That's linked to an asset that's going to grow. But what the government usually does, even at the local levels, they'll run deficits, not on not to essentially finance assets, but also just to finance a negative cash flow in their operating budget. And the reason that they do that is in order to appease not only the voters, but also to appease the, the employee unions who they they are able to manipulate and use to get political endorsements. So this whole thing is, is cyclical. And at the local government level, even though they don't have the luxury of having a so-called printing press to create money like the federal government does, at the local level, you see them wanting to go into further debt. And, and, and in the case of our school districts, it's usually in the, case, in the case of bonds. We've seen it in San Diego city politics where it comes down to these ridiculous pension programs that are, that are you know, unfunded. And in the end, the, this just creates a burden on all of us. It creates a burden on all these other people like you and me, Joe Taxpayer, that we're the ones that have to fund this largesse. We're the ones that have to fund these political favors to keep the politicians in power. And at the same time, we're funding larger and larger government organizations that are more and more intrusive in our personal lives. So they need to cut spending and they need to do it dramatically. I mean, what they're doing here in Washington, D.C., and on my screen, there's a picture of McCarthy and Biden. What they're doing is flat out immoral. It is unethical, immoral, and it's a disgrace. And neither side can claim any virtue on this. They just get in bed together and they agree to throw the debt ceiling out the window. And it leaves us as taxpayers as the ones on the hook. And God forbid you're in the upper middle class. I mean, not, I won't even talk about the upper, the 1%, but, you know, if you're here in Southern California and you own a home and you know, those homes, that's a pretty decent sized asset. And if you've been saving for your retirement, trying to be responsible for yourself, you know, you accumulate assets. And then at some point they become, you become a target, you know, that they want to tax you to fund their irresponsibility. So it just drives me nuts when I see this. And I think these guys need to be called out. Um, here's Mike Devine on the live stream. He says, when we talk about debt, you frame it in a partisan manner. I am not a member of either party, but I will be held responsible for paying it back. We need to just stop spending today. Easy peasy. Okay. I, you're, I'm not, I don't know if I'm, I'm saying that other people frame it partisan. The Republicans will say the Democrats are spending too much and the Democrats will say the Republicans are spending too much. But the, the, the reality is, is that they're both spending too much. I remember Rand Paul said is there's this um, uh, this agreement where the Republicans will agree to spend more money on welfare and the Democrats will agree to spend more money on warfare and they both get what they want and the spending keeps going up. So, uh, Mike, uh, yeah, it's not partisan. These two parties are so remarkably similar, incredibly similar. 
Um, I mean, here they are. They came to an agreement not to really cut any spending and to throw the debt ceiling out the window. There's no limit on debt now. And yeah, we just need to stop spending today. Easy peasy. Well, yeah. I mean, it, God, if I were, you know, king for a day, man, I would just take, I would cut so much spending. It wouldn't even be funny. I mean, I would reform Social Security and Medicare. I would dramatically cut back the military budget. I would like to Yuri's point, I would eliminate all the corporate welfare. I mean, we need to scale back spending by like 50%. To even have a shot at really having a surplus so that we can responsibly pay down the debt. But there's no way that's ever going to happen. Mike Devine goes on to say, parties have nothing to do with debt. Are, they are used to fleece the taxpayer. And you're right. They create a false narrative that it's the other, other guy that's responsible for the debt. But the reality is, is that they're both responsible for it. And they're both screwing us on this. Uh, Pete Neal on the live stream says, first, I think you have to define too much. We got to where we are based on decisions made over the last 250 years when parties negotiated true negotiations, not like today. Well, you're right. They don't negotiate. Um, well, you know who negotiates is, is McCarthy and Biden behind closed doors and with their you know team. But when this bill is presented to the House of Representatives, is there like a robust debate is there speakers on the House floor and they discuss it, you know, like um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Like, you know, we have these romantic ideas of how um, Congress is supposed to deliberate bills and offer amendments. And they don't do that. What they do is they they cook up something behind closed doors and they bring it to the floor of Congress. And they say, you need to pass this in the next 24 hours or there's going to be economic disaster and you need to do it now. And oh, by the way, this bill is like 33,000 pages, which is impossible for anyone to read in 24 hours. And they won't accept any amendments. And this thing gets pushed through. So it's, it's the whole thing is theater. In the end, all the spending is going to continue. In the end, all the donors that put these politicians into office are going to get all their favors whether it comes in the form of corporate welfare or it comes in the form of other handouts to different constituency groups or it comes in the form of regulatory measures that rig the system to favor this guy at the expense of someone else, that's still all going to continue. And it's ridiculous. And they set a terrible example for Americans, for children. Um, they they don't ex- – they, they're unable to lead – in a confident, responsible manner. This is all about clinging to power and control, the whole thing, uh, and the heck with responsibility. So, okay, enough of that. <laughs> I kind of a little bit off my soapbox here. I, I don't typically like to get too much into the national issues, but this was a legit issue. I mean, this is a big problem in America, and it's not going away, and neither side has a solution, neither side cares. Okay, let's move along. And I want to talk about – we're talking about local stuff now. 
oh, wow, I really placed that graphic in the wrong spot <laughs> on my widescreen view. It's like right over my face. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about money in, in local politics. And, and there's a picture on the screen of Colin Parent, and who's a council member from La Mesa, the vice mayor of La Mesa, and he's running for state assembly. And another picture of Poway Mayor Steve Voss. And, and I bring them up in this conversation because it's relevant. Now, this headline caught my attention earlier today, um, and it was about uh, – uh, let me see if I have the headline here. Yeah, this uh, campaign finance um, rocked by a new law. I saw the headline, and, and then I got a text message from Kevin Juza. You know, Kevin is, was a former um, a candidate for city council in District 3 here in Poway. And he said, did you see this? And this is interesting. And so – I went and actually dug in a little more on this, and it is interesting, and it has huge implications for our local politicians. So what this is, is that this is a bill that was signed in, in Sacramento in September of 2022, um, Senate Bill 1439. It requires elected officials to recuse themselves from votes involving anyone who gave them more than $250 in campaign contributions. Specifically, if, say, a city council member got a donation from a developer for $500 and the developer's project came up for a vote, the council member would have to either give back the money within 30 days of learning that the project was up for a vote or not vote at all. And I'm thinking, oh, this this is interesting because we've seen this happen here in my hometown of Poway. We've seen this happen with La Mesa. And that's why those two individuals are on the screen where there's a lot of money being spent on campaign finance to help these guys get elected. Um, and if it doesn't come directly to their campaign, a lot of times it's, it's, it's given to indirectly to PACs, to political action committees. And we saw a ton of that in Poway where developers that supported one candidate, in this case, it was Brian Pepin, these developers were putting money into a PAC that was running ads as hit pieces on his opponent, Hiram Soto. And, you know, tens of thousands of dollars were being spent on this and developers who had an interest in our hometown of Poway because they were the ones that were involved in the construction projects all along Poway Road. And we've seen similar things with the farm also financing, in some cases, like Steve Voss, who's our mayor, he has this um, nonprofit organization called Carols by Candlelight. And this is a or this is they put it's on this fundraiser and it's, you know, to raise money for kids. And it's it's a neat program, you know, and they, it's all Christmas carols. It's all in December. But he gets corporate sponsorship from a lot of companies that do business in the city of Poway that he is presiding over when they're voting on the city council on whether or not to to pass certain laws or certain proposals that allow these developers to build more. And, you know, I like if you follow my podcast, you know that I'm generally for property rights and I don't have a problem with developers building. It's their land. But the problem is, is that when there's this quid pro quo, when there's this thing about where money is flowing and follow the money, and if if a developer is giving, let's just say, $5,000 to Steve Voss's charity event, 
are they essentially buying favors of Steve Voss, knowing that Steve Voss will be able to vote on a proposal to approve their housing development in Poway? The same thing is true of Colin Parent in La Mesa. He runs a nonprofit organization called Circulate San Diego that advocates for affordable housing and mass transit and, you know, a, a number of other kind of more urbanization of suburban areas. He's what I'll call as a YIMBY, a yes in my backyard. It's interesting. It's, he's a Democrat that's for more development, but he's for higher density, link to transit, link to walkable neighborhoods. And, you know, we can debate the pros and cons of that, but what he wants is uh, this organization. He gets a lot of fundraising from developers and architects and people that have a, a vested interest in what these cities are doing when they approve these large projects. And so it creates this appearance of impropriety. Um, so uh, <laughs> this is Pete Neal on the live stream says, huge implications locally, pretty much what I asked for when the new council members took their seats. Yeah. I mean, so it, it's going to be, I, I'm curious to see how they're going to enforce this. Um, Yuri Boland says, that's Sacramento in a nutshell, development. Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of these arrangements where, you know, developers are kind of greasing the palms of politicians. If they're not donating directly to their campaign, they're instead donating to a political action committee that attacks their opponent. Or they're donating to that candidate's nonprofit organization, which the candidate creates to create this virtuous, do-good, feel-good vibe in their city. And that creates these relationships that look kind of sketchy. So get this. So there was previously the Levine Act that has long prohibited members of boards like planning commissions and coastal commission from voting on contracts or applications if they got more the $250 donations from any person or company seeking the contract. Yeah, because it's like bribery. So with planning boards and, and, and coastal commissions, this sort of thing has been the law, $250 limit. And for many years, an organization called California Common Cause has tried to get legislation through that would apply the same standard to actual elected officials, but every year it failed. Because, you know, it's got to pass in Sacramento. And of course, every year it failed because the politicians don't want to put limits on how much money they can raise. Because they need that money for their campaign so they can stay in power. It comes down to power. But last year, a bill sponsored by Senator Steve Glazer, a Democrat from Orinda, um, the, he, he, this bill that was just passed in September, um, it, it, was, it was presented, and for some reason, it just kind of kept progressing through the system. The bill just kept quietly advancing through the legislature. There was no opposition, virtually no discussion. It didn't seem like anyone noticed it. And then Gavin Newsom signed it into law in September. And so now these local governments are saying, oh, my God, now we have this $250 limit from people that are seeking to do business with our particular local government agency, city government, school district, whatever. Now these people, these politicians are not allowed to vote on it or they got to give the money back. So this law protects 
Californians from the pay-to-play corruption and the appearance of corruption that plagues our cities and counties and helps to restore faith in our leaders and in our government, according to Jonathan Mehta Stein, the executive director for California Cause. But interestingly, one group is given an exception. There's always an exception, right? Guess who it is? It's public employee unions. So the teachers union can spend as much as they want funding these school board candidates. Teachers union can um, give tons of campaign dollars to school board candidates, knowing full well that that school board candidate, if they're elected, they will be voting on a huge raise for those teachers. And it's not just teachers, it's administrators and all the other non-teachers in the school district. Those school board members vote on their contracts, vote on their raises, and yet they can take money, unlimited number amounts of money from unions. And there are unions in, in city government as well. I mean, certainly in the city of San Diego, there's huge union involvement. I don't think there's much of that in our hometown of Poway. But this is, this is crazy. I mean, now these cities are going to have some really serious challenges ahead of them on how they're going to enforce this. And it's one thing if they're going to get money directly and, and you know, you could point to – because they got to disclose how much money they, they get in campaign contributions. So if they got $250 or $500, they have to disclose it. But if that money instead went to a PAC or if that money instead went to their nonprofit, does that need to be disclosed? And if not, I mean, is this a workaround? More comments on the live stream. This is from Mike Devine. He says, so if I run for District 2 in Poway, all my developer clients who hired me in the past, I must recuse myself, but someone who works as a social worker can vote on anything. Not right. Well, that, that's, that's a good point. If Let's just say, hypothetically, you ran for office and some of these developer clients were clients that you had done business with five years ago, 10 years ago. But maybe you're not doing business with them right now. And then if you're elected and something is presented to the city council to vote on, would you have to recuse yourself or not? This gets tricky on, on how they're going to draw these lines. Pete Neal on the live stream says, okay, not just Barry Leonard's seat. Let's elect an entirely new city council and mayor and monitor their funding to, monitor their funding to $250 each. Well, here, I'll, I'll say this. My, this all ultimately gets down to the point of money and politics. And people get angry about having all this money in politics. And I'm with you, man. It just, it, it, it's corrupt or it, or it creates the, the appearance of corruption. Um, now I'm of the opinion, well, let me just say this. A lot of people are of the opinion. We need to take money out of politics. We need to have campaign finance limits. We need to, in some cases, maybe some people say we need to make our elections publicly funded to make any private donations essentially illegal. And I just, I just think that's not realistic at all, um, especially in a nation that's built on this notion of freedom, of liberty. And you're telling people you can't, you can't help support candidates that you like? Um, I'm of the opinion, rather than taking money out of politics, we need to take the politics out of money. What does that mean? What that means is, is that these government officials have too much power over the local economy in the first place. I mean, that's why 
developers and other corporate donors are are donating to these candidates. They're not doing it, you know, because they're altruistic and have a sense of duty to their city. No, they're doing it because they're trying to win favors. They're trying to influence those politicians to to essentially vote on legislation that favors them. Well, I'm saying that legislation shouldn't be voted on by the city council in the first place in a lot of these cases. You know, if if someone owns property and they want to build housing on that property, well, it's their property. They shouldn't have to go get approval from the mayor. And they and then on top of it, they shouldn't have to like give the mayor money to get in his good favor so that the mayor and the city council will ultimately vote positively for a bill that would allow someone to build housing on their property. So the whole thing is just, it's a mess. And um, so I, I'm curious to see how this is going to affect specifically um, Steve Voss, the mayor of Poway and his carols for candlelight, um, Colin uh, Parent, the vice mayor of La Mesa and his Circulate San Diego nonprofit. And then I am also curious, um, you know, one of our other local councilmen in Poway, Brian Pepin, he had these PACs that were funded by developers that were spending huge money. It was tens of thousands, if not over a hundred thousand, uh, tens of thousands of dollars, essentially trying to tear down his opponent. And again, you know, if I don't have a problem, if you want to spend money to tear down an opponent, you know, go for it. But how are they going to interpret this law? And are they going to now apply it in these cases of essentially indirect funding? How does that work? <laughs> okay, uh, conversation on the live stream amongst Pete and Mike. Pete says, Mike, you're moving back to Poway. I, th- my, I think uh, Mike was offering a hypothetical on that one. Okay, uh, I got more here to get into. We're going to talk a little bit about um, the Poway appointment or election for the Barry Leonard seat. We're going to talk a little bit about Bally Sports and what's going on with the San Diego Padres. Not necessarily a sports-related thing, but more of like a cable television, streaming television on, in our local market. That's the, what the conversation will be about. And then what's going on with the Santee drive-in. And then we've got our community forum where we'll have a conversation on a number of other issues where our live stream viewers and our social media commenters have weighed in on a number of topics. Before we do that, um, let me just say, if you want to learn more about my podcast, you want to maybe access some of our old episodes, see video clips, because, you know, I'm always posting video clips on YouTube and on social media. Go to my website, johnreillyproject.com, and there you'll see all the stuff that I'm doing. And frankly, there's a bunch of stuff I should be doing more of. Uh, but this is sort of a passion project. And if you want to learn more about it, maybe you might want to be a guest on the podcast. Uh, just visit my website, johnreillyproject.com, and reach out to me there. And uh, and if you want to learn more, it's all there. <laughs> the whole thing at johnreillyproject.com. Okay, let's move on. I want to talk a little bit here about Barry Leonard. And we 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 talked about this a few weeks ago, actually about a month ago, where Barry Leonard, who's the vice mayor of Poway, decided that he was going to resign. And he is stepping down. I think his last meeting might be, did we? Did he already have his last meeting or is it coming up? I know there's a meeting on June 6th and they're going to decide on the process on how he's going to be replaced. Are they going to appoint someone to fill the seat? Are they going to have a special election? Would they go without appointing anyone? Well, I don't think they're going to do that. I mean, there's still a year and a half left on that term. But this is a hot button point here locally for a lot of different reasons. Uh, 
because the history has been that when people have resigned midway through their term, the city council has appointed someone typically using the rationale of a week, if we had an election, not only would it take a while to have the election, but it would be an extra cost to taxpayers. You know, it might be $200,000, $300,000, and we, we just want to save the city money. But you know what? The, the city of Poway's budget is like over $100 million a year. So the cost of an election is less than 1% of the budget. So really, that shouldn't be the financial objection. I mean, what, what's more important in city government than having democratically elected representatives? I mean, that's probably... The, more, the, the most fundamental thing, you know, then we can get to what they should be focused on, which is typically police, fire, parks, infrastructure, roads, public works. But it has to start from a base of having democratically elected representatives. If they have if they appoint someone, then it's not a democratically elected representative. And there's been a history. I mean, Barry Leonard himself was actually an appointment. And when person is appointed you know, good on them. You know, maybe they, they probably got chosen for a number of reasons that may be virtuous. But when they go into their next election, they are now suddenly at a huge advantage. They are the incumbent. They are already in a position of a prestige, power, authority. They already are in the good graces of the other politicians on the city council and the mayor. And incumbents, as we discussed before, they win like over 90 percent of the time. So, God, if you if you can win the appointment, man, you are suddenly in the catbird's seat for the next election. And it's a huge advantage. And a lot of times people feel that that kind of distorts what the democratic process should be. So um, on June 6th, they're going to make a decision on how they're going to replace Barry Leonard. If it's going to be an appointment or if it's going to be an election. And I think if I saw the agenda, I read it. I mean, there's probably language in there now that they could just immediately appoint someone right right now. You know for sure that the city council, the mayor and other members of city council have a short list in mind. They kind of have a pecking order in mind. They, I'm assuming they they had advance notice of Barry Leonard's resignation. I don't know how much advance notice, but they probably knew it wasn't like a bomb was dropped just on that uh, that meeting date. They must have known prior and they probably had wheels in motion trying to identify who would be the one to replace. But there's a lot of people here in our city that they don't want the appointment. They want to get someone that's democratically elected. And now, meanwhile, um, even if they fill that seat, um, it's only for a year and a half whether it's a democratically elected person or an appointment. And in a year and a half, there'll be another election on the regular rhythm. And in that other election, we already have one announced candidate for District 2, and that's Tony Blaine. And he's he was campaigning before the last election. He's like, he was campaigning one election ahead. Uh, pretty interesting guy, Tony Blaine. I talked a little bit about him on a previous podcast episode because he's a big advocate for term limits. In Poway, you know, most cities in San Diego County have term limits. I'm in a pro- I'm in a proponent of term limits just to encourage a little bit more turnover because incumbents, once they're entrenched, they become part of the machine of how city government works, part of the establishment. And it's just so darn difficult to remove an incumbent 
unless there's some major controversy. Uh, so we're going to find out a little bit more um, um, about how Barry Leonard is going to be replaced. I'm very curious on this. There's a lot of other people in town that are also very curious. Uh, a couple more comments on the live stream. Pete Neal says, one final comment on contributions. Well, after my run for D1, I have learned that I was considered not viable because I didn't accept any outside money. Well, yeah, that's, that's how they play the game. For people that are fundraising and fundraising in large amounts of money, typically from corporate donors or other wealthy influencers, they'll say, they'll say well, that's a sign of my support. That's a signal that I've got all these people that really want me in office. And it is, but it's usually a signal that those people want to invest in you because they're expecting a return on that investment once you're appointed or you're elected. Um, And when I ran in 2014, there was a similar thing with endorsements. You know, I didn't really, when I ran in 2014, I didn't go out and actively seek endorsements or play that game. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Um, And a lot of others kind of already had certain endorsements of certain groups sort of already in their back pocket. And I figured, you know what? The people want to hear about the issues. They want to see a candidate that has solutions. So I didn't play the endorsement game. And I remember being approached by two of the incumbents and they say, who's endorsing you? No one's endorsing you. You're not a serious candidate. I'm like, oh God, it's like the way politics are played. And yeah, um, this this is how cronyism just keeps compounding itself. More and more money in politics, which creates more and more corruption or the appearance of corruption. Yuri Bolin on the live stream says, Pete, you and I were the only ones whose integrity could never be questioned. Well, you know, good on you guys for not getting campaign dollars, but it puts you at a huge disadvantage because you can't really effectively market yourself. I think getting donations, particularly from individuals, is is great. It's 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 uh, the way it should work. Now, if you're getting donations from corporations with the wink, wink, nod, nod that you're going to vote on things to benefit that corporation, well, that's not right. That's cronyism. But you know, if you're running for city council, you're running for mayor, and you've got people that like you and want to support you and want to donate money to you, yeah, I don't see. I, I don't think that's a question on someone's integrity. You know, as a matter of fact, I'm a podcaster and I'll gladly take donations if people support what I'm doing and want to encourage me to do more. I have a donate button on my website at johnreillyproject.com. You can donate five bucks, 10 bucks. You can donate $100 a month, automatically debited from your checking account if you choose, if you choose to support me. Um, But at any rate, uh, yeah, the, the, the money in local politics, particularly here in Poway in the last election cycle, was mind blowing compared to previous elections. And why? Because there was so much development of housing um, and those people that are in the development community, whether they're the actual builders or if they're the people that, the, the, that are uh, doing a lot of the subcontract work, people that are in the trade. They all had a vested interest in it, and that's why there was so much money spent to win that approval. Okay, um, let's move on, and I want to talk now. i got two more things I'm going to discuss before we get to the community forum, 
And the first thing we're going to talk a little bit about here is the Padres. And I, and I know I'm trying not to cover sports in my podcast, and I'm not really approaching this from a sports angle. It's more about a television angle and the implications here in San Diego. Because for the longest time, I, I subscribed to cable TV and, you know, we had a Cox um, account and, um, and we cut the cord and we are now streaming a lot of stuff and, and the whole streaming world is evolving and changing and, and prices are sort of in flux. And, and now this hit, this news hit. Um, so the story is, is that Bally Sports, which is Channel 56 on Cox, um, on Cox Cable, they were paying rights fees to the San Diego Padres to the tune of about, I think, 100 million bucks a year. Was, so I think they had to make a $20 million payment or is it a 20? I don't know. I get my numbers mixed up. They had to make a huge payment here at the end of May to in order to retain the licensing rights to broadcast the Padres. And of course, they make their money from the subscription do- uh, uh, dollars and, they, and the advertising dollars. Well, they decided they're not going to pay anymore. And the reason is, is because the whole market's shifting. And as people are cutting the cord and not using Cox Cable for TV as much, their revenues are declining. And yet the Padres wanted this big license fee. The world's changing. Um, and so people are now going, well, what am I going to do? Where can I get this? Where, what, how am I going to be able to watch the Padre games? Well, I did the math on this. And I, it's an interesting story. And I'm curious if you've gone down a similar path because we had our cable TV package, and I think I had like – we didn't have any like HBO or any of those premium channels, but we had some of the sports channels, and that combined with a high-speed internet connection, and then we get the highest one specifically so I can live stream here in my podcast. And we were paying 100 bucks a month just for the internet portion only. And by the way, I get download speeds that are close to a terabyte. A second. I mean, crazy download speeds. And my upload speeds are about 35 megabytes, which is pretty good. And it makes this live stream functional. I mean, if I didn't have that high speed internet, you know, the video would probably be a lot more choppy. So we were paying 300 bucks a month to Cox, roughly, $100 of which was for the internet. And the remaining 200, roughly speaking, was for the TV portion of our contract. And of course, you know, it started out a lot less than that. And Cox kept raising the price. And, and then when, the, and when this whole streaming model, you know, was unfolding, you know, we were curious about maybe cutting the cord. But we always cling to Cox Cable because we had to watch the Padre games. And that was really the only viable way to see them. Well, this year we finally cut the cord. Um, and I ended up subscribing to DirecTV Stream. Not the DirecTV satellite that a lot of people already have, but you can get a streaming package from DirecTV. It's kind of like Netflix. It sits on top of your internet. So the plan I had was I was going to just keep the internet portion at 100 bucks a month, and then I was going to just add on a television service package with DirecTV Stream, which is essentially like a cable TV package. I get a whole bunch of channels, including Bally Sports, so I can watch the Padre games. But that was going to be like about, roughly speaking, about 100 bucks a month. And I was like, okay, that's a lot. But, you know, I, and I really don't want all those other channels. I just want to watch the Padre game because on my current system with my uh, Google Chrome Fire Stick, I can get a lot of my local news for free. I don't, have, I don't have to pay for that. 
And really, when I'm watching television, I'm usually watching either local news or sports or I'm watching um, just streaming, uh, you know, like on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something. I mean, I, I have largely abandoned, you know, the 200 channels on cable TV. Just they, I haven't really been watching many of those channels in years. In fact, when we had cable TV, I, I would sometimes have like cable news on, but mostly in the background. I'd watch the local news in the morning or at night. And, and then the rest of my viewing time was typically on Netflix or Amazon Prime or HBO Max or something like that. So the, I had this grand plan. And the grand plan was, okay, 300 bucks with Cox. I was going to 200 for TV, $100 for internet because I had an expensive internet package for this fast downloading, uploading so I could do the live stream. I figured, okay, I'll drop the $200 on TV. I have $100 on the internet. And then I'll just a la carte some of these different packages that I want. And in the end, I might spend 150, 200 bucks a month, which would be less than 300. And I'm not really feeling like I'm subservient to Cox. I didn't want to get sucked into the whole Cox cable thing. Well, it didn't turn out that way. Like, like I said, I ended up having to buy the DirecTV package, DirecTV stream, so I could get Bally Sports, which was 100 bucks a month. But get this, when I, when I dropped the cable TV portion of my Cox bill, which was roughly 200 and my internet was 100 when I went internet only, they took that $100 a month and upped it to 180 Again, I'm spending a lot more than normal because I have this higher, the highest speed available. And I'm like, oh my God, this is totally destroying the financial model. And so we had to subscribe to DirecTV Stream. Well, now Bally's is, is going out of business, or at least they're abandoning the San Diego Padre contract. And now there are options. Like if you were on Cox Cable, you're going to be able to watch the games on Channel 4, just like we used to in the 1990s to watch Padre games there. And if I keep my DirecTV Stream package, I'll be able to watch it there, just on a different channel. Because it won't be on Bally Sports. It'll be part of the MLB package. But MLB, I, I can actually now buy just the, the subscription for the Padre games for only 20 bucks a month. Now it's working for me. Now I can a la carte this. That's good news. I'm really happy about this because it's, it's actually freeing up the marketplace. And MLB is doing a really good job. They're going to make these games available. And, and, you know, they used to black out the local games on MLB. And they're not going to do that anymore, at least for the Padres. So this is actually a very exciting thing. This is a big change that I'm really supportive of. But we're going to learn more about this. I mean, we're curious to know, like, will, will Don Orsillo and, and Mark Grant, who are up there on the screen, will they all still be the guys? Apparently they will. They're, they're employees of the Padres. But like their pregame guys, like Mike Pomeranz and Mark Sweeney, and are they going to still be part of the package? I don't know. I mean, I, I think we're going to have to find out more. But in the next few days, I think I'm, I'm going to get this organized and I'm going to make the switch. And I'm really happy about it. But there's a lot of questions right now with San Diego sports fans about what's happening here. I mean, what do you think? Have you given some thought to this? Um, Yuri Bolin on the live stream says, uh, miss channel four and Sunday games on channel 51 better than the eighties when they were on pay-per-view. Um, yeah. Uh, back in the eighties, remember baseball, local baseball was rarely on TV. I mean, you might get like two or three games a month. At least that's how it was when I was a kid in the seventies. And then I remember, God, I was raised in Burlingame. I had a girlfriend in Millbrae, who was the city next door. And 
they had cable TV in Millbrae before we had it in Burlingame. And I went to visit their house and the dad had TBS and was able to watch all the Atlanta Braves games on television, every game, like all 162. And I couldn't believe it because I was lucky if I could watch a Giants game on television once or twice a month. And they were able to see every single game. Uh, Boy, is that whole model shifted. But I remember Channel 4 back in the day was really cool. It was a good local station. Um, And then, you know, this whole, but the whole marketplace is shifting. Everything seems to be changing here. Pete Neal says, yeah, I think it's because the Padres are not on the track everyone thought they would be on. Yeah, they're the biggest disappointment in Major League Baseball right now. It's awful. Just horrible. San Diego sports curse. But uh, they won last night, so I, I have some hope. Okay, let's move on. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Santee Drive-In, and then we'll talk about the San Diego Community Forum. So let's go here to the drive-in talk. And uh, have you guys ever been out to the Santee Drive-In? You ever checked it out? Um, I remember going there about hmm, 12, 13 years ago, and I remember I brought my son and a couple of his friends, and we saw a, a cartoon movie. I can't remember which one it was. Um, and it was, it was like monsters and aliens or something like that. Um, and it was a fun cartoon movie and we went to the, the drive-in theater in Santee and it was really cool. Um, so apparently though, it's, it's about to be sold. It hasn't been sold yet. And so a lot of people are like really freaking out what's going on with the Santee drive-in. So a developer wants an industrial building on the site, but this isn't the first time the iconic venue has entertained a sale. So apparently on April 14th, a Los Angeles-based developer submitted paperwork to the city of Santee to buy the dozen acres um, that host the drive-in and the swap meet. And if you maybe you've driven by it. It's like right there on the 67 um, when you're in Santee, Lakeside Santee, right by the border there. Um, and this company, North Palisade Opco, wants to, quote, demolish existing structures and clear the site entirely. And in its place would be a new industrial building about 50 feet tall and more than 291,000 square feet that could be used for warehousing, distribution, manufacturing, assembly, research development, as well as related office uses. So people have this romantic idea about drive-ins. You know, it's like a, a call to our past and, and, uh, and people love them. But, you know, the world's changed. I mean, you know, people like we're talking about how we're watching television and streaming. People watch entertainment in very different ways now than they did in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, People also are realizing that that real estate is a lot more valuable now rather than using it as a place like a giant parking lot with a screen and a snack bar. Now they're realizing, yeah, the commercial opportunity for that that land is, is significant. Well, according to Susan Boyd, who's the um, owner of the property, she said, we could not keep the drive-in in business if, it, if we didn't own the property. But everyone has a tender spot for it from it being there for so long. Apparently, this drive-in in Santee is reportedly one of only a few hundred open-air theaters left in the nation, nationwide. So my question to you is, when was the last time you went to a drive-in theater? Now, I remember as a kid, um, little boy, I would go in the back of my mom's Chevy. And I remember 
My mom and my grandmother would, would be in the front seat. I'd be in the back seat. They put me in my pajamas and I was probably four years old, five years old. And then they'd watch the movie and I'd sleep in the back seat. It was actually perfect. That way they could go to the movies and they didn't have to worry about a babysitter because I was with them. And the Burlingame drive-in was just like right across the freeway from where I grew up. And then later on, when I became a teenager and we used to go there all the time and boy, we had a lot of fun, Um, you know, just hanging out with friends, watching movies or, you know, just, it was just a place to be. It was just kind of a fun little thing to do. And it was such a different experience than going to a regular theater. In fact, I remember I saw Star Wars, the first movie, A New Hope, in 1977 at the drive-in movie. So at the time, I was, what, 12 years old. And I remember being totally confused. And you can't hear everything really clearly through that speaker that's, like, hanging off of your window. Um, but, uh, God, I, I just a lot of really positive memories going to the drive-in for me. And I remember seeing movies there with my buddies and then— the second feature, because it was always a two-feature deal, which made it really good. The second feature was so often it was either Airplane or Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And I think I've seen those two movies like unlimited numbers of times. Um, but even the, the drive-in in Burlingame is now been blown out of the water. It doesn't exist anymore. It's now all office buildings there because um, that real estate is just so darn expensive. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of sad. I, I think it is going to go away. Um, Pete Neild on the live stream commenting here. He says, drive-in theaters are great fogged up windows in everything. <laughs> yeah, mea culpa. I was one of those too back in high school days. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, yeah, I, I can't imagine that this is going to be saved. I think, again, it's people clinging to their memories and it's like a, a soft spot in their heart. Now, I'll tell you one funny story is uh, back in the, Early 80s, when I was still in high school, um, I was, you know, my sport then was BMX racing. And boy, we used to drive all over the place to go to races. And by the time I turned 16, my parents no longer had to drive me. I was able to drive myself and had a couple of other buddies that were my age and we take turns. And we would drive to Sacramento or to Reno, to Fresno, to Santa Cruz to go to all these races. And it just was, I just lived and breathed that every Saturday and Sunday. And I remember one time we were driving on Highway 80 and we were in between Vallejo and Sacramento. Can't remember exactly where, probably near Fairfield or what, what other cities are along that way. And I remember looking out on the side and there was an X-rated drive-in theater. And we we're like, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. And, you know, of course, they had the screen turned away from the, from the uh, freeway. But, I mean, unbelievable. So I can't imagine that's still there anymore. But that was just kind of a goofy thing. Okay. Um, let's keep moving. Uh, keep on trucking. Got uh, a couple more comments. Let's, we're, let's get into the, um, the San Diego Community Forum. This is where I like, I mean, already, Pete, Mike, Yuri, thank you for participating in the live stream, kind of sharing your thoughts and comments. You know, by all means, keep sharing. Type in your thoughts and comments on the live stream on Facebook or YouTube. I'll get you involved. But I want to get involved some of our social media commenters. There's some really good points here. And here's the first one. And this is from an, um, last week's episode. I talked about this big sinkhole in Rancho Bernardo. You know, it's on a Scala Drive. And it's been a disaster. They're, they're having trouble just getting the approval 
to work on it because of all the environmental impact and all these regulations that are preventing them from getting going in there and fixing it. And in the meantime, the road is closed. So this comment came in from M2Crow on my YouTube channel. And this person said, same story, same song and dance. San Diego is very good at going out and surveying the condition of the roads and writing reports and calling it good. In fact, because that's all they do. They have gotten really good at it and now even have this expensive high-tech van, which we talked about that in the podcast previously, how they're measuring all the potholes and all the gravel and everything else. They're just gathering data rather than fixing the darn thing. Uh, M2 Crow goes on to say, perhaps Poway can school San Diego on how to fix and maintain roads. I started doing all of my shopping in Poway just so I can drive on good roads and not damage my car. Carmel Mountain Road near Costco, Home Depot, etc. is such a terrible road and has been that way for over a decade. What a total failure. Our city managers are. And why the people who live here pay taxes just keep putting up with that kind of uh, lack of decent roads is perplexing to me. Oh, my God. I totally agree with you. M2 Crow. Yeah, the roads in Poway are pretty good. I mean, they're not perfect, but relative to San Diego, Rancho Bernardo, I mean, they're just way better. And the local politicians here, they prioritize it and they have a system, they have a plan. And they're smart in doing that because they remove it. Generally speaking, they remove it as an objection when we come to these um, elections. They're more likely to get reelected because they keep the roads in pretty darn good shape. But yeah, Karma Mountain Road right there by Home Depot and Costco, it's awful. Just terrible. I mean, the holes in the road, the gravel, the, the whoop-de-doos and, and undulations, it's insane. That Carmel Mountain Road and, you know, that and we have the sinkhole there on Escala. We've got all the terrible roads in the Westwood community that are still mat. They're still damaged from. Was it the Witch Creek Fire or the Cedar Fire? Probably the Witch Creek Fire in 07. Those roads are still damaged from that. That's like 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, the, the roads are just a ridiculous. Um, and San Diego, they just they just can't get out of their own damn way. And, you know, so they and they, they can't solve that. And I don't even get into the homeless problem, which we'll talk about in a minute, but they can't solve that one either. Got another comment on the roads. This is from Mike Devine, who was previously on the live stream. He said, Caltrans just completed paving of Highway 67 between Scripps Poway Parkway and Mussy Grade. It was bad for about one and a half years. They haven't used the taxes to widen 67 yet, and many of the reflecting yellow centerline batons that were installed a few months ago are gone. Yeah, that's right. You're 100% right, Mike. You know, we've been paying an extra sales tax for at least 20 years with the promise that they were going to widen the freeways, that they were going to make the roads better. And then we just found out a few years ago that it's all a bait and switch. And now they're not going to be widening a lot of these roads. Instead, they're going to be funding mass transit and trolleys and subways and bus lines. And you're like, well, wait a minute. You know, you make this promise and then you, you flip on us. That ain't right. Um, and yeah, there has always been this promise to widen the 78, widen the 67. They reluctantly have finally agreed to widen the 52. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But it's a problem. And it's because, I, you know, I think 
our local leaders, particularly at Sandag, have this, and I talk about these romantic ideas of drive-in theaters. They have these romantic love affairs with trains. And trains, <laughs> it, it, you would have to build a tremendous amount of infrastructure to make a system like that work in San Diego. Because you'd have to have this network built. You couldn't just have trains down the major freeways because you got to have all the um, the connecting train lines. It would be an insane investment, probably require a tremendous amount of eminent domain. And then in the end, you're investing in technology that's like from the 20th century, rather than kind of looking forward to what we're seeing now with autonomous dr- driving cars, which I think are going to be the solution here. But yeah, the, our local officials screwed us. And in fact, I think, if I recall, the vote in the early 2000s to continue the expanded sales tax to fund the roads was, you know, doubling down on, on a something that was already approved a decade earlier. Again, with these promises to widen the freeways, but they're always too late on it. And then, yeah, Mike, to your point, along the 67, yeah, a lot of those pylons in the middle, I noticed that they were there and then suddenly they're not there or some of them were missing. So it makes me wonder if people are just taking them out, you know, drunk drivers or kids goofing off or or are the Caltrans people removing them for some reason? I don't know. I mean, Highway 67 is really dangerous. And they've got a serious problem there. The widening of it isn't necessary just for making the traffic flow during commute times during rush hour. But, you know, when there's a fire out in East County, you know, it's a bottleneck getting in and out of there. And if you only got one lane in each direction, that's trouble. Uh, they need to do something there. And uh, and sadly, they're not. I mean, so you think the roads would be like the most primary thing that local government does. And yet... They fail over and over again. Again, I'll tip my hat to Poway. They do a pretty good job. Okay, here's our next on our community forum. And this is from Catherine C. She was commenting on this housing first policy and Jim Desmond, the County Board of Supervisors, and trying to come up with a solution for homelessness. And she said, I was homeless once for two months. And the largest barrier for me was not being unemployed or mental health nor addiction. It was the lack of access of obtaining somewhere to live. I had only an associate degree, which meant low paying job, which meant not enough income to qualify for a place to live. Every situation is different, but I always think how making education and higher pay a priority would help many. Like many points made in this video, giving away a place to stay won't address the other issues these people may be facing which will make a big ongoing bill for the city. Wow. So um, actually, Catherine, you're the second person that was previously homeless that has commented on some of my videos on YouTube. Thank you for, for sharing your thoughts and opinions. Yeah, every case is different. I mean, there are definitely people like yourself, Catherine, that, you know, for whatever reason, you know, you found yourself homeless. And for some people, it is strictly a housing thing. For some people, they may already still have a job, you know, We could talk about how much that job pays, but they may already have a job. They may already, you know, be of sound mind. They may not have addiction issues, but they just got priced out or they got kicked out of their place where they were living. You know, their lease ended and the landlord kicked them out. Or I don't know, you could have a boyfriend, girlfriend, you could be married and suddenly you're not together anymore and someone has to leave and, and you can't afford to go anywhere else. 
There's a lot of people that find themselves in those spots. So, yeah, for some people, housing solves their problem. But the question then becomes if the, if the city or the county is buying like these old hotels and setting those up for the homeless, then, well, what's the strategy there? You know, short term, OK, yeah, you can kind of get back on your feet. But how long can they stay there? Because there's going to be some people like yourself, Catherine, that maybe you might just need a place for a few weeks, maybe a month. And then you kind of get your life back on track and then you'll be in a better position to find roommates or to find a situation and you can move in together in something that's a little more affordable. But there's other people that, I mean, they're a long ways away from that situation. There, there are a lot of other people that need healthcare, that need to overcome addiction issues, that have mental health problems. So it's complex. That's why Jim Desmond says housing first isn't the solution. But housing is one of a multidimensional solution to the problem. In the end, um, people need to take responsibility for themselves. And Catherine, I, you know, you were in a tough spot, but it sounds like you did take responsibility because you were only homeless for two months. I'm sure that was terrible. It was rough. But in the end, we have to take responsibility for our own lives. Now, housing is hella expensive in San Diego. It's a beautiful place to live. There's big demand here and they're not building enough. And so we have a lack of supply, huge demand that makes housing expensive. Whether you're renting an apartment or buying a house or renting a condo, housing is expensive in San Diego. And for a lot of people, yeah, their jobs just don't pay enough. So if they're in that situation, I kind of wonder if I were in that situation, what would I do? Well, certainly going back to school and getting an education so you have greater skills to allow you to earn more money. That's one strategy, but that takes time. I think for some people, you know, maybe San Diego isn't the place you need to be. Um, Maybe there are other places in America that are more affordable and you'll be able to kind of build your skills and experience there and then maybe come back to San Diego if you're fortunate. But yeah, the economics don't always work for a lot of people and it's tricky. It's hard. It's really hard. Okay, moving on down the line. Um, This is from Boss Lady Cleaning Hacks. Talking about Escondido superhero Amy Landers, you know, she's the one that was going into the bathrooms and voluntarily cleaning the bathrooms in the parks in Escondido. And she responded, she said, hey, this is me. (laughs) Thank you so much for the shout out. So that's cool. Uh, The person that I was talking about in the video responded to the video. She said, this made me so happy. She says, if you want to email me, we can discuss this. Coin-operated bathrooms are not the answer. It's important for the homeless to have access to restrooms and and they can't afford food, let alone to use a restroom. There are options and I have plans for this. So I I need to reach back out to Boss Lady Cleaning Hacks and talk to her about this. And yeah, coin-operated restrooms, I was was kicking around some ideas, kind of spitballing. Talked about coin-operated or, you know, dollar bill-operated doorknobs, kind of like we see in some of the McDonald's. Would that help? It'd probably help a bit. But yeah, for homeless people and you know even others, there's got to be another solution. I, I'm of the opinion that there's an opportunity to get commercial businesses involved, kind of like when you're on a road trip and you stop at a service station to get gas and you go into the convenience store and there's a restroom in there and you, anyone can use it. And it's usually pretty clean. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot better than the ones in the parks in Escondido. So I think there could be an opportunity to do that, to allow private business to set up on government land 
with the agreement that they provide a free and clean restroom that's open to the public. That's not an unreasonable idea. So let's see what comes from this. But yeah, I, Amy, I'd be interested in talking to you more about this, particularly um, what the options and plans that you have for this and, and really what Escondido needs to do. Because Escondido, you know, they, they're underfunding park maintenance um, and because they're spending money on other things. And, and in my opinion, they're not prioritizing as well as they should. Okay, one final person here on the San Diego Community Forum. This is from Avor Volker commenting on my vertical video I did on YouTube talking about the San Diego housing crisis. And this was the proposal to have a payroll tax on businesses that have employees earning $150,000 or more and having that money go into a pot that could be used to fund housing for lower income people. And Avor says, hey, this will help. High income earners need to contribute more to the economy. They take far more than they give. And that's part of the housing problem. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I strongly disagree with this. And let's, let's talk about it. Okay. First of all, um, high income earners need to contribute more to the economy. The high income earners are the ones that are contributing the most to the economy right now. They're the ones that are not only buying houses and, and buying you know, million dollar homes and, and contra- you know, employing contractors to work on their houses. They're the ones that are buying cars and going to, you know, spending money in all of our local retail establishments and restaurants. They're already contributing more to the economy than low income people are. Um, and a lot of these higher income people are working for businesses Either they own the business or they're a high-paid employee of that business, and that business is a thriving entity that employs a lot of other people and drives the overall economy in San Diego County. So do higher-income earners need to contribute more to the economy? Well, they already are. I mean, I, I think taxing them or taxing the company they work for really has an opposite effect because if you end up, let's just say a company has employees that make over 200,000 and they got to pay 1% on that. So what would that be? 200, that'd be like 2000 bucks a year. Um, and you know, that money goes into a fund. Well, you know what you end up, what that ends up doing is that rich guy still owns the house they live in, but now you're providing more money for more affordable housing for other, for lower income people, which sounds virtuous, but you're now just increasing demand for more housing. But there's still the problem is they're not building enough. So now you're just increasing demand, but not increasing supply. And as a result, that's going to make the prices go up even higher. And to say nothing of the fact that this will discourage from businesses from wanting to set up shop in San Diego because of these additional regulations on their scientists and on their innovators that work in these biotech companies and these other high tech companies. So, uh, yeah, I have a a problem with this. And they take far more than they give, and that's part of the housing problem? Come on, man. Um, People that are – you look at the property tax bill of someone that owns an expensive house in San Diego. It's huge. It's a huge number. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, you get this attacking rich people. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, we should be trying to encourage more people to make more money, encourage more wealth development. And overall, that's a rising tide that lifts all boats. Rather than trying to like take from the rich and give to the poor like Robin Hood, that's just a shell game that moves money around.
I do want to make one little tangent comment here. If you're following my podcast, you may realize I've been doing a lot more of these vertical videos. Um, and these have been very successful for me. Um, I've been getting thousands of views on these videos and uh, my subscription numbers have been going up at a much faster rate. So what is this? So these are videos that I do that are, you know, like the one you're watching on YouTube now for my podcast is a 1920 by 1080 frame. It's a horizontal, normal style video frame. These vertical videos are what were used for YouTube shorts. YouTube shorts came out and it was like a competitive alternative to TikTok where people were doing these short form videos of 30 seconds, 60 seconds. Um, and people will just sit at their phone and just scroll through these things. And they're a vertical orientation. And I started making them for YouTube and I saw my numbers on YouTube really improve. Um, and you had to keep them to under 60 seconds. That was kind of the rule for the YouTube shorts. And uh, they worked really well. And so then I started posting these on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on TikTok. And I not only do that for the John Riley Project podcast, but I also do it for the podcast I do with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. And Ham Hacksaw's podcast is blowing up. I mean, his subscriber rates, he's got... Some of these vertical videos, Hacksaw has over 19,000 views on some of these videos. Just incredible. Now, granted, Hacksaw's podcast appeals to a much larger audience than the John Riley podcast, which talks like about local politics and things that are going on in some of the cities in San Diego. But even in my own little podcast world, these vertical videos have made a big difference. Um, like I said, my views, my hours watched, my subscriptions, my followers, they're all going up at a much faster rate than they did before I made these. And I, you know, I take time to develop them. I'll, uh, I have the voice to text so you, you can see like closed captioning on it because a lot of times people are, you know, flipping through it on their phone with the sound off, but at least they can read it as the video is going on because, you know, they might be in a place where they need to have the sound off, but they can still experience the video and understand what I'm saying. And then I drop in a lot of other graphics and little uh, like video clips inside the, the, the 58 second video and to make it more entertaining and fun. And uh, I'll tell you what, they did really well. In fact, the viewership on these little vertical videos for me is just way more than a lot of the other things I do. Sometimes it makes me wonder if that's all I should do. But the, and the end result, what I try to do here in the podcast is I get I gather my thoughts for the week and then I say, OK, Wednesday is my content creation day. And so I do the podcast and, it, you know, we're at an hour and 25 minutes, which is about right, maybe a little longer than I'd like. And then when I'm done, I take this podcast and I break it into segments, each chapter, its own individual video that I post on YouTube and share that on social media. But now, since I've kind of really made the investment in kind of studying some of these issues and gathering my thoughts on these issues, I'll then, right after I'm done with this podcast, I record all these little vertical videos on my phone. And then I edit those throughout the week. And I kind of have a nice little rhythm here. So I'm able to produce content and release content pretty much every day or, or close to every day. Um, and it's just kind of good overall for my podcast because I've always got stuff going on. Every day of the week, there seems to be a new video clip on YouTube or on Instagram, you know, whether it's a three-minute segment from the podcast or it's a special 
50 second video, narrow video, vertical video that like this San Diego housing crisis one, um, it kind of all works. So um, I'm really happy about that. So if I know I've been approached by a number of other people, you know, Ed Franklin, particularly, he's another local podcaster. And he says, how are you getting all these views? How are you growing your subscription base? And ultimately, this is what it is. I mean, it's about not only producing content that people want, but you've got to niche it down into really narrow segments so that the podcast itself or the, excuse me, the content itself is focused on a very specific thing. Like, right, when I do the, 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 the podcast overall, this hour and a half version, I mean, I cover a lot of different topics and a lot of other issues and it's an hour and a half. I mean, that's a big commitment to ask of someone, especially someone that doesn't know who I am. They all, yeah, listen or watch the podcast and they got to make an hour and a half investment of their time. That's asking a lot. So that's why making those five minute video clips is very helpful. And then if they're only on a particular topic, well, now they're kind of search engine optimized when people are looking for, you know, discussion about, let's say, Poway local news, man, I come up right away in the Google search results or in the YouTube search results. Um, and that works great. And so the co- the content is is now carved out, made specific for that niche audience. It has titles in this video that are all the high traffic keywords that people are searching on. And then on top of that, I then do the the ultra little videos that are 50 seconds, those vertical ones that are super easy to digest. You know, again, an hour and a half is a tough ask, but even trying to get someone to watch a five minute clip is hard too. Cause like a lot of my five minute clips that are on YouTube, it might only have like an average viewership of like, you know, two and a half minutes. What does that mean? That means there's some people that watch 30 sec or 30 seconds of it and say, ah, eh, I don't want to watch this. And they, they bail. Other people will watch the whole thing, but most people only go so far. So I figure if I can take the content and repurpose it in many different ways and then also share with them, like if they're watching the the 52nd vertical that, you know, in the show notes, it'll say, check out the full podcast, click on the link here, go back to this website for more information. Or if you want to donate to what he's, what, what Riley is doing, and here's a link to do that as well. That all kind of you know, you kind of get a little bit of synergy there going. And the more you give out like little bite-sized pieces of it, people will like it. They'll start to follow you. And maybe they'll they'll get your attention with a, a vertical like the San Diego housing crisis video. And then maybe they start watching the five or seven minute video clips. And then maybe eventually they, they'll listen or watch to the podcast. So I think it's a good content building strategy that's been very helpful for me. So if um, if any of you are ever interested in, creating a podcast or, you know, let me know, ask me questions. Cause I've been doing this now for like five years and I've been experimenting with different things. I kind of know what works and what doesn't. And, but in the end, it's always a lot of work to put, not only get your ideas organized and get in front of a camera to do it all. But now it's, it's very clear that once you're done with the podcast, all the other effort of repurposing the content And making it available on all these other social media platforms is critical to the success of a podcast um, just to give more widespread distribution, particularly in small bite-sized chunks that people can easily digest. Okay, enough of that. Um, Wow. So 
a lot going on in San Diego. Boy, we talked well, we talked initially about the the debt ceiling circus with Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy and the sham that that whole nonsense is. We talked about money in politics and the rules changing. That's a big deal. $250 limit from corporate donors or any I mean, if, if a local politician is ruling on an issue where they've gotten more than $250 from a donor, they have to recuse themselves. This could radically change the landscape of local politics. Keep an eye on that. We talked a bit about Pow- Barry Leonard's resignation in Poway and what the city of Poway is going to do to replace him. Apparently, a decision is going to be made on June 6th. Don't be surprised if our local leaders already kind of have a short list of who they want. They might even have that shortlist narrowed down to one. You know, you can expect that's going to happen. We talked a little bit about Padres and Bally Sports and how that whole streaming media situation is changing. And we talked about the Santee Drive-In and a lot of other thoughts and comments on the San Diego Community Forum. Wow, so much. Okay, friends, um, it's 146. And let's wrap up this bad boy. This is the John Riley Project. This is episode number 321 of the John Riley Project. My goal is to eventually get to a thousand. I got a ways to go, but I'm a third of the way there. So uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks for watching. I'll be back at you next Wednesday and make it a great week. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.